and we're going to start there, Mark chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at verse, starting in verse 40, 40 through basically chapter 16, the end of the, the chapter, but I want to start reading uh, back in verse 22. Mark chapter 15, verse 22 says, Then they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews... They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among them, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. There were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which, he had, been, which had been hewn in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who's been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter 
He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but did not believe them either. Uh, Pray with me, would you? Father, this morning we... We answer the question that Isaiah asked, who's believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God, we confess to you that we have. God, we look upon Christ on the cross. There was nothing that we should be attracted to. He was despised. He was forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. God, we praise you this morning. That by his scourging, we are healed. And Lord, we confess that as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, your servant, will justify the many because he poured himself out to death. Lord, we thank you that you were numbered with the transgressors. And you bore the sin of many, and the grave is empty. Amen. It was in 1786 that William Wilberforce began to reflect deeply on his life, which led to a period of intense sorrow. I'm sure that no human creature could suffer more than I did for some months, he later wrote. His unnatural gloom lifted on Easter, 1786. He says, amidst the general chorus with which all nature seems on such a morning to be swelling the song of praise and thanksgiving. He had experienced a spiritual rebirth. He abstained from alcohol, practiced rigorous self-examination, as befit, he believed, a serious Christian. He abhorred the socializing that went along with politicking. He worried about the temptations of the table the endless dinner parties, which he thought were full of vain and useless conversation. He said, they disqualify me for every useful purpose in life 
waste my time, impair my health, fill my mind with thoughts of resistance before and self-condemnation afterward. He began to see his life's purpose. My walk is a public one, he wrote in his diary. My business in this world, and I must mix the assemblies of men or quit the post which providence seems to have assigned me. Undaunted by the critics and naysayers, he stood courageously for truth, writing, Some might say that one's faith is a private matter and should not be spoken of so publicly. They might assert this in public, but what they do really think in their hearts. The fact is, those who say such things usually don't even have a concern for faith in the privacy of their interior lives. I would suggest that faith is everyone's business. What we believe determines how we live. Regarding slave slave trade, he wrote, So enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. And on the night of February 23rd, 1807, Wilberforce's passion became reality as the House of Commons voted to abolish slave trade by a vote of 283 to 16. So as we look at the lives of men like William Wilberforce, men who changed the world, we have to stop and ask, what is it that sets them apart? What set Wilberforce apart? And I would argue this morning that it was courage. It was courage motivated by his understanding of the gospel. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we meditate on the cross and the resurrection and as we look at the courageous faith of a few groups of people in this narrative. My prayer is that like Wilberforce, our hearts will swell with the song of praise and thanksgiving for what Christ has done and may our lives be marked by courageous faith. I had you look at Mark 15, starting in verse 40. We'll see four lessons on courage from the resurrection that increase our faith, motivate a deeper love for our Savior. Lesson number one starts in verses 40 and 41. There were also some women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the less and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the resurrection account, I often don't stop to think about this unsuspecting group of women. But if you do, and you take a moment to think about who they are, the setting in, in which they're in, they're at the cross, they're at Golgotha. It says they're watching from a distance, but apparently they had a view of what was happening. You have to stop and ask yourself, why? Why do the gospel accounts include this unsuspecting group of women? And then you have to ask a follow-up question to that. Where are the men? Where are the disciples? Why are the disciples not at the cross? We know from the Gospel of John, there was one disciple who was at the foot of the cross, and that was John. But the rest of the disciples were not there. So where were they? 
Let me remind you that the disciples were actively involved in Jesus's public ministry. They, uh, they, had, they had been given authority. They had been given power to cast out demons. They were preachers. They were strong men. They had public ministries. They had a public face. They had the confidence of walking alongside of Christ. And yet, they're not at the cross. So go back with me a couple of chapters. Uh, If you've read the Gospel of Mark, and we've talked about it here before, I've taught on some passages in Mark, you know that uh, the disciples were hard-headed. They were a little bit slow. They didn't quite understand, you know, the, the whole book of the Gospel of Mark is asking, essentially asking the question, who is Jesus? Why did he come? How did he become the Messiah? And throughout the entire book, the disciples just don't get it. Uh, go back to Mark chapter 6. I just, wanna, I just want you to see a little bit of a progression here. Uh, Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7, it says, and this is after Jesus' public ministry. This is after he's called the disciples. Verse 7, it says, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Okay, so they had authority. Uh, verse 12, go down to verse 12. They went out and preached that men should repent. So they were bold preachers of the gospel, and Jesus commissioned them, go out and preach the gospel of repentance. Verse 13, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And then go over to verse 30. They're doing all of this incredible work, and they come back to Jesus, and what do they do? They sort of boast about what they'd been doing. Verse 30, the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Now, fast forward a few more chapters. Chapter 9. The entire time Jesus is giving them this ministry, he's also trying to communicate to them, guys, I'm not going to be here with you forever. Uh, I'm going to be handed over to the authorities. I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be crucified. He told them this multiple times, and they didn't get it. Uh, Chapter 9, look at verse 30. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. Now, just a a footnote here. Galilee was where Jesus did most of his ministry, all around the Sea of Galilee. Now, it's also where all of these women had been serving Jesus. So the women that we're going to look at, Mary Magdalene, Uh, Martha, these are the women who had been serving Jesus during his ministry in Galilee. It says, from there they went out, began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. Look down at verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. So Jesus is telling them, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to hang on the cross, I'm going to die. And the disciples, uh, they're so quick that they're arguing about which of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, they do not get it. Now, fast forward a few more chapters. I just want you to see the progression. Now we're in the Passion Week. We come to uh, the Last Supper. And we're in Mark chapter 14 now. Chapter 14, verse 27. 
He says, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall, shall be scattered. So here Jesus tells them, you guys aren't going to be at the cross. You're going to fall away. Verse 31, classic Peter. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. Look over at verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? And then look over at verse 50. This is after Jesus is arrested, verse 48. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. Verse 50 and they all left him and fled. Now you come to our passage. And keep in mind, chapter 14, verse 72, immediately a rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Weep. And then you come to our passage here, verse 40 and 41, there were some women. So you have to see this contrast between all of the men who had the authority. They had been with Jesus. He gave them the ability to perform miracles, to heal, to cast out demons. And we come to the cross and there's a group of women. Let's look at a few of them. Mary Magdalene. She was from Magdala in Galilee. She experienced dramatic healing when seven demons came out of her. Uh, if you look, turn your Bible to Luke chapter 8. We'll just look at this account here real quick. Luke chapter 8. And you can keep your finger in Luke. So we'll look at another passage here. Look at Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sickness. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, her Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means." Okay, so Mary Magdalene, she was probably the first to encounter the risen Christ. We see her in John chapter 20. Uh, and her name being listed first probably indicates that she had some kind of role among these women. Uh, in this verse, you also have Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph. And then you have Salome, who was the wife of Zebedee and the mother of James and John. And then it says there are other women. So it's likely that uh, Mary of Bethany sister of Martha and Lazarus. Uh, if you remember, Luke, look at Luke chapter 10, if you still have your finger there. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? 
Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her. See, these women watched as Jesus was falsely accused, beaten, mocked, hung on a cross, yet in this passage, we see their courage to follow him when the disciples all fled. And I love what J.C. Ryle says about this particular passage. He says, The faith of women sometimes stands upright when the faith of men fails and gives way. But it is interesting to remark throughout the New Testament how often we find the grace of God glorified in women and how much benefit God has been pleased to confer through them on the church and on the world. In the Old Testament, we see sin and death brought in by the woman's transgression. In the New Testament, we see Jesus born of a woman and life and immortality brought to light by the miraculous birth. In the Old Testament, we often see women providing, proving a hindrance and a snare to man. The women before the flood, the histories of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Delilah, Bathsheba, Jezebel are all painful examples. In the New Testament, we generally see women mentioned as a help and an assistance to the cause of true religion. Elizabeth, Mary, Martha, Dorcas, Lydia, and the women named by Paul to the Romans are all cases in point. The contrast is striking, and we need not double intention, doubt intention. It is one of the many proofs that grace is more abundant under the gospel than under the law. It seems meant to teach us that women have an important place in the church of Christ, one that ought to be assigned to them and one they ought to fill. There is a great work that women can do for God's glory without being teachers. And then he says this, happy is that congregation in which women know this and act upon it. So you have to stop for a minute and ask yourself, okay, in this particular passage, we see the role of the women. So we have to ask ourselves now, where are the men? Where are the men today? And I would say to the young men here, let's go. Let's go. We, in preaching lab, as your first semester as a seminary student, uh, used to have to do uh, basically like improv preaching. You would be handed a, a piece of paper with a word on it, and you'd have to stand up and give a sermon. And I remember my first preaching lab was with Dr. Hargrove. You guys know Carl Hargrove? He has a deep, booming voice. And uh, we get into preaching lab together. And we thought, okay, he's going, to start this, uh, he's going to start this process where he starts handing out words. Well, he doesn't. He starts by ranting about Farmville. You guys know this game on Facebook, Farmville? And somebody, one of the men, one of the men in the preaching lab had the audacity to send him an invitation to play Farmville together on Facebook. And Dr. Hargrove, I just remember in his booming voice, he says, Farmville, I'm a man. And he went off on the class about why men don't play Farmville. Now, this is not in verses 40 and 41, but I do think it causes us to stop for a minute and ask the question, where are the men? Where are the men? And I would say to the young men in this room and maybe even some of the older men, um, it starts with setting an alarm. It starts with getting up, making your bed, 
doing some crunches, going for a run, getting a job, buying a ring, putting a ring on the finger, getting married, and going out and loving Jesus and loving your family and preaching the gospel and being an influencer for Christ. The problem is, is too many men today are sitting at home, thumbing through their Instagram reels, dreaming about how they might someday be an influencer. And we need some men to step up and be men and have courage and have conviction and have boldness. And if you don't believe me, there's some statistics that prove this. Pew Research uh, did a survey. I'm just give you some of these percentages. The percentage of evangelical Protestants, women compared to men, 55% women, 45% men. The percentage of those who believe in God, 69% women, 57% men. The importance of church, 59% women, 47% men. The importance of church attendance, 40% women, 31% men. Frequency of prayer, 64% women, 46% men. Reading scripture, 40% women, 30% men. Belief in heaven, 76% women, 67% men. Belief in hell, this was the only one that was close, 59% women, 56% men. In every single category, religion, Christianity, the Bible, prayer, missions, the gospel, it's more important to women than it is to men. Pioneer Missions, a missions organization, says since the year 1900, missionary women have outnumbered missionary men, sometimes by a two-to-one ratio, especially in the hardest places. Today, about two-thirds of missionaries are married couples, and 70 to 80% of the rest are single women. So the first lesson here, looking at these unsuspecting group of women, is real simple. You see in these group of women, courage to follow. When everybody else had fled, when everybody else had abandoned Jesus, you see this group of women who faithfully stayed by Jesus' side during his ministry in Galilee, and then he's at the cross in Golgotha, Golgotha, and there they are. They're with him. And we're going to see later that not only were they there watching from a distance during his crucifixion, but they were actually there to care for him afterwards. Okay, lesson number two. Lesson number two, the courage to associate with Christ, verses 42 and 43. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, or the Sanhedrin, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Verse 44, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. But we're just going to look at verses 42 and 43. So Joseph of Arimathea, he was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. If you remember, the Sanhedrin was the highest Jewish council in the first century. They had 71 members, and they were presided over by the high priest. The Gospels describe the role of the Sanhedrin in the arrest, trials, condemnation of Jesus, and the Sanhedrin, under the leadership of Caiaphas plotted to have Jesus killed. The chief priests conspired with Judas to betray him. After his arrest, they brought Jesus to the council. They used false witnesses to condemn him. 
they sent him to Pilate and pressured Pilate into pronouncing the death sentence. Okay, so here you have Joseph of Arimathea, a guy who's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Decides that he wants to go in and ask for the body of Jesus after Jesus had been crucified. Now you have to just stop and think about this for a minute. Think about what he was risking. Okay, now John's gospel says that Joseph of Arimathea was actually a disciple. And he said he was a secret disciple, said he was a secret believer. And it said he also disagreed with the council's decision to crucify Jesus. Nevertheless, after Jesus is crucified, he decides he's going to go in and talk to Pilate and ask Pilate for Jesus' body. You can understand why it would have taken so much courage on his part to stand against the Sanhedrin. Pilate would not have been happy to see Joseph, considering the Sanhedrin essentially forced him to crucify Jesus. And now here, Joseph is caught in the middle of both groups, yet he's willing to go and ask for Jesus' body. This word courage, tomesas, to show boldness or resolution in the face of danger, opposition, or a problem. It says there in verse 43, he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It's also worth noting that Pilate hated the Jews. He was constantly trying to provoke conflict among them. He would often bring Roman military insignia bearing the image of Caesar in order to offend the Jews. He even tried to avoid trying Jesus by sending him to Herod, but Herod sent him back. Look at John, uh, turn over to John chapter 19. I just want you to see here the kind of person Pilate was and why it's so significant that Joseph of Arimathea would have had the the boldness and the audacity and would have had to summon the courage to go and ask him for Jesus's body. Uh, Look at John chapter 19, starting in verse eight. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. See, Pilate wanted to release Jesus, but he gave into the pressure of the Jews who were crying for his crucifixion. And you have to imagine that Pilate was probably surprised when Joseph of Arimathea came in and asked for his body. Yet Joseph of Arimathea knew who he was, which is why he went and asked for the body. He only ever saw him as the man who'd been rejected by the Jews, beaten and crucified. Joseph of Arimathea would have been there probably during most of the process, certainly during the the trial and the arrest and the crucifixion. You see, the disciples worshiped Christ while he was alive. The disciples worshiped Christ while he was speaking. The disciples worshiped Christ while he was performing miracles and ministering in all of his earthly glory. Yet Joseph 
of Arimathea worshipped him when he was a cold, bloody and bruised and dead corpse. When he was silent and dead, Joseph of Arimathea was willing to go in and, rest, and, and risk his livelihood and his life to ask for Jesus' body. And I think, there's a, I think there's a lesson here for us. I think that it's often how we live our Christian lives. When God is answering prayer, when, when we feel his presence in our lives, when he seems alive to us, we're willing to, his, to extol his name and praise him and give him all the glory when things are going great. Yet when God is silent, seemingly unresponsive, doesn't answer our prayers, seems distant, what do we do? Well, we're like the disciples. We flee, we fret, we fear, we bicker, we argue about who's the greatest, and that's because we don't understand who he is. See, Joseph of Arimathea understood who Jesus was. And it's why he says there, why it says in verse 43, back in Mark 15, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. At the very beginning of the gospel of Mark, one of the reasons why Jesus came is because he was ushering in the kingdom. And throughout the entire book, the disciples didn't understand what that meant. They thought the kingdom coming was Jesus was going to come and overthrow Roman rule. They didn't have a concept for the fact that Jesus was going to hang on the cross. But Joseph of Arimathea did. So the question for us is when when's the last time you had the courage to put your reputation on the line for the sake of Christ? When's the last time you had the boldness? When's the last time you had to, had to gather up courage to go in and ask for something that would put your reputation on the line as a Christian? See, this is the kind of courage that we see in this narrative. It's the kind of courage we see in the women willing to follow Jesus, it's the kind of courage we see in Joseph of Arimathea's willingness to go in and put his reputation and his livelihood on the line. And I'm kind of a one-trick pony. I like statistics. Uh, according to Open Doors, a Christian advocacy group, at least 360 million Christians experienced persecution in 2022. That number was up 20 million from 2021. Last year, there were estimated to be 5,898 Christians who were killed for their faith, up from 4,761 in 2021. So what does this mean? It means that if you haven't needed the courage to associate with Christ in the past, a day's probably coming when your courage is going to be tested. So when we look at this narrative, here these people are standing at the foot of the cross. They've watched Jesus get crucified and what do we see? We see the courage of those women who are willing to follow. We see the courage of Joseph of Arimathea, who was willing to put his reputation on the line. And then we also see this, what I think is a little bit of 
courage from the centurion, and I would say this is lesson number three, the courage to confess Christ. Starting in verse 44, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. The reason why Pilate was wondering is because he was surprised that Jesus had died so quickly. Typically, it took several days for somebody to die from crucifixion, but Jesus had died quickly. And so Pilate sends this centurion. Now, remember, a centurion would have been somebody that would have overseen at least 100 soldiers. And this centurion would have been there throughout the entire process. He was likely there at Jesus' arrest. Uh, the fake trial, the beating, the scourging, the dividing of the garments, the placing of the crown of thorns, the nailing of his hands and feet. And if you look back at verse 39, after Jesus cries out his last, there's an earthquake. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And you see in verse 39, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the first time in the Gospel of Mark where somebody understands that Jesus was the Messiah. Throughout the entire Gospel, the disciples didn't get it. And this is the first time in the Gospel where somebody confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. So now you go down to verse 44, Pilate wonders if he was dead, he summons the centurion, and then the centurion in verse 45, and ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So the centurion came back to Pilate and says, yes, he's dead. And I can't help but wonder if there was any point where the centurion said anything to Pilate about Jesus being the Messiah. If the centurion was willing to confess that Jesus was truly the Son of God, and Pilate sends him to see if Jesus' body is dead. What did the centurion say to Pilate? We don't know. These are the white spaces of Scripture. Uh, we leave these things up to you know Jenkins to interpret in movies that he makes about what was said and what wasn't said. But I do think that we can stop for just a minute and ask ourselves the question, okay, who was this centurion? And, and what did he know about Christ? And why was he willing to confess that Christ was the Messiah? And did he say anything to Pilate about it? Would he have confessed anything to Pilate about Jesus being the Messiah? So that's why I wrote a third lesson there, the courage to confess Christ. Lesson number four, and this is the last lesson, the courage to obey Christ. So here we see the end of the narrative, starting in verse 46. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in a linen cloth, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. So here these women are now caring for the body of Jesus. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb. When the sun had risen, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. 
He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where he laid. And then here's the command. One of the commands. What does the angel say? He says, go tell his disciples. And I love this. He says, go tell his disciples and Peter. Now you say, okay, why? Why Peter was a disciple? Why would Mark point out the fact that the angel specifically said, go and tell Peter? Well, the last time we heard from Peter was back in chapter 14, verse 72, when he had denied Christ three times. And he began to weep. I think this is just God's grace in giving us a little bit of a picture that he wanted to encourage Peter specifically. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And Jesus told him that back in chapter 14. So what's the, what's the courage to obey Christ? Well, for these women, it was specifically go tell the disciples that Jesus is not here. But what's the command for all of us to obey Christ? It's the end of the book. It's the end of each gospel. Now, there's some debate as to where the gospel of Mark ends, the earliest manuscript. It ends in verse, at verse 8. They went out, fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20, and that was because they were concerned that the gospel ended too abruptly. My personal uh, conviction is that the gospel ends at verse 8, and that's because Mark wanted it to end abruptly. Mark wanted it to end abruptly because he wants the reader to stop and ask themselves the question, who is Jesus? But then the Great Commission comes, and here's the command, and here's where we're all put in a position where we have to ask ourselves, do we have the courage to obey? Verse 15, and he said to them, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Luke 24, 45 to 47, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And he says this, you are witnesses to these things. And then John chapter 21, after asking Peter three times, do you love me? What does he say to Peter? He says, follow me. So do you have the courage to obey? Do you have the courage to follow Jesus? Do you have the courage to associate with Jesus? Do you have the courage to confess Jesus? And do you have the courage to obey? Do you have the courage to go? Now, did, did anybody notice the structure of uh, these verses? Verses 40, starting 15, 40 to uh, 16, 8. Did you notice the structure? Anyone? Did you catch on anything? You had women, Joseph of Arimathea, women. Remember this? The Mark, the Mark and Sandwich. The Mark and Sandwich. This is the last Mark and Sandwich in the Gospel of Mark. And Mark uses this technique uh, very specifically. 
to emphasize that whatever's in the middle of the sandwich is the most important part of the message. And what's in the middle of the sandwich is essentially the courage of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, I slid in another piece of meat. That's the confession of the centurion. Uh, but you can, add, you can add layers to the sandwich. But we have the Markin sandwich. Women, Joseph of Arimathea, women. Markin sandwich. So what's the point? What's he trying to teach us? Well, he's emphasizing the point that a true follower of Christ must courageously identify with Jesus. The cross brings condemnation or the cross brings courage. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there are two groups here this morning. There are those of us who look upon the cross and find there a bruised and bloodied Savior, and we find forgiveness, and we find confidence, and we find assurance. But there might be those who look upon the cross and they are ashamed. They're ashamed because of guilt, ashamed because of doubt, ashamed because of unwillingness to repent, and the cross is foolishness. So if you're here this morning, you've never embraced forgiveness that was accomplished on the cross for your own salvation, don't flee. Don't flee from the cross. Jesus said in John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Leave here with courage and confidence in the forgiveness of your sin. I think back to Mark chapter 1, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he encounters the leper. And the leper comes up to him, and it says that the leper beseeched him, fell on his knees, and asked Jesus to heal him. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. See, Jesus doesn't say try harder. He doesn't say clean yourself up. He doesn't say, do these good works. Instead, to the one who comes by faith, he will say, I am willing, be cleansed. And I'll close with this from John Bunyan. The love of Christ is essential to his being, for God is love. His love does not ebb and flow or come short as our love. There is no uncertainty in his love. His love acts by and appears wonderful in such a death that he died. He laid down his life for his enemies. A disciple sold him. One denied him, and they all forsook him. They beat him with fists, spat on him, mocked him, crowned him with thorns, scourged him, and hung him on a tree. Yet all this could not take his heart off the work of our redemption. To die he came, and to die he did for our sins, that we might live through him. Oh, what infinite love. Let's close in prayer. Father, I love what it says. He is risen. He is not there. And then it says, go. Uh, God, give us the courage to follow you. Give us the courage to associate with you, to put our reputations and our livelihoods on the line for your sake. Give us the courage to confess you. And Lord, give us the courage to obey you. As we celebrate the cross today, let everything else in our life fall into the shadows. And God, we rejoice that the tomb is empty, that you've risen <clears throat> and you're not there. In Christ's name, amen.